This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's talk about emergency services. Uh, this has been an ongoing story for years now, and that's sad that uh, we still see some very, very frightening numbers. Hamilton Paramedic Service is raising alarm that hospital overcrowding is causing too few ambulances to be out on the road responding to emergencies when you call 911. The recommended time frame to have patients on ambulances handed off to the hospital and get back out on the road, 30 minutes. Three times as long here in Hamilton. What is happening and why? Mario Pastorero is the president of OPSU Local 256. He joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Mario, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. And yourself? Uh, good. I, I'm a little troubled by this. I mean, the, I, the, <laughs> I feel like you and I are doing like the movie Groundhog Day. I mean, you know, come on, we're talking about the same stuff over and over again. And we usually end up by saying, well, the government's going to try this now, and hopefully that's going to solve it. Here we are again. Yeah, it seems to be an ongoing issue. It's almost like a soap opera. It's just never going to end. Uh, 2016 report presented to council yesterday by our chief Sanderson um, laid out essentially the status of the service for the most part, citing some of the positive things our service has undertaken. There's uh, many initiatives, uh, programs that we've undertaken in order to reduce uh, uh, demand pressures on our service. Uh, but it also cited what, what the call projections in existing call volume and some of the challenges we face. Um, demands for medical assistance outweigh our ability to meet them based on insufficient frontline paramedic staffing. Although that point wasn't sufficiently delivered to council, that is the end point. We're looking at an increasing call volume that's projected to hit 20 to 22,000 additional calls over the next four to five years. Even the previous projections of a 3% increase in call volume over the last four or five years was conservative. We've hit a 35% uh, increasing call volume over the last seven years. And last year alone, our call volume increased 7%. When you add in the factors, the code zero events, and our inability to offload our patients, we've got a crisis looming here. Unless it's dealt with uh, expeditiously by council, um, they're going to be facing uh, uh, an inadequate ambulance service, inadequate response times, and our taxpayers and our citizens will suffer as a result of it, though. Well, when you look at these numbers, Mario, you could probably make an argument that we're already into that crisis, or at least we're on the, the, the edge of it right now anyway, because uh, and let's talk about those code zeros. I mean, this is a phrase that was new and shocking to us a few years ago, and now they're just they're a, a regular part of every report. Oh, by the way, we had X number of code zeros this month. Uh, there, no number of code zeros is, is the best way to do this, and we just don't seem to be able to attain that. Well, absolutely. As we've said before, it's almost become a passive data entry point. Oh, we're reporting 44, 62, 68, 69. The, the, the issue is this. They're unreported in, in number and length of event anyway. At the end of the day, the provincial government cites what an appropriate time is to offload a patient within the emergency department. It's 30 minutes. Yet what they fail to do is address the problem when that standard isn't met. As a result of their lack of funding, the hospitals in uh, additional staffing, additional beds. So we've got a crisis that's partially created by the provincial government. It's being borne by the municipality and our ambulance service. Um, saving that, our, the demands for service continue to grow for a number of demographic reasons. Uh, the time that we spend treating very sick patients continues to increase. Our ambulance service is stretched to the max. We've been saying this for many, many years. And the fact that we're playing staffing, uh, staffing catch-up is a problem. Uh, unfortunately, and you know, we're somewhat critical of our senior management, they didn't put forth uh, a staff enhancement request for 2017. 
what was reported yesterday, and again, the sentence wasn't finished by our chief, increasing call volume will result in additional ambulances. Unless we put them on the road, we're going to have uh, an increasing crisis over and above what we're facing right now, Bill. We should just remind people, I'm sure everybody's aware of what a code zero is, but uh, just to, to underscore that once again, that's a situation where there are one or zero ambulances available to answer a 911 call. And and it's happening with greater frequency now. It's happened with greater frequency and for greater lengths of time. And again, they're underreported. But, I mean, the, the code zero... Are, you're, you're saying they're underreported? Yes, they are. Because in October of last year, there were 432 in October alone. Well, I I think what that number equates to is uh, how long we were in the hospital in excess of two hours. So um, they're reported to us by a third party. Um, But whether it's uh, 460, 70, 50, they're unacceptable. But what is not reported is the, the, the occasions when we have just two ambulances available to respond to the next emergency. Um, our system is under stress, and in spite, you know, our service does a great job of dealing with the demands for our service. We've also been very innovative in establishing programs that are being mimicked by other jurisdictions, namely social navigator programs, uh, our CHAPS, community health assessment by paramedic programs, where we actually go into um, some of the social buildings, uh, Strathcona, and we deal with patients preemptively in order to prevent, in order to improve their health care, mm-hmm. and so they don't necessarily activate the 911 system. So we're doing, and as well as our community paramedic program, uh, it's innovative, it's successful. We're trying to preempt and reduce the number of 911 calls that occur by the frequent users. So in spite of those efforts, we're still challenged on the front lines. We're inadequately staffed, and as I've said before, Bill, of the three emergency services, EMS always seems to be playing catch up. We're sorely underfunded, and that has to be that has to be presented to council. And council will have to assess its own risk tolerance for having an inadequate ambulance service. In spite of some of the enhancements in the past, they've been inadequate. We're playing catch up constantly, Bill. Let's let's talk a little bit about what's causing this, and and and, and the uh, the offload is is part of this problem, obviously, Mario. And and we've been talking about this for years now. Now, if I understand the policy correctly, uh, your staff cannot leave a patient until the hospital is ready to take them over. That's a legislative requirement, Bill. It's, it's the uh, law. That's so. just not. That's not Paul. That's the law. Absolutely. That's uh, we're mandated to um, stay with the patient, continue to treat them medically, which we do. Uh, we're obviously consuming resources in doing that. That's indisputable, um, and, and that's you know that that's not our jurisdiction. It's a provincial jurisdiction to adequately fund for sufficient beds within the hospitals, within the alternative. Uh, care beds within the community, and that's a provincial obligation, yet we're bearing the, the brunt of that. So, yes, we cannot offload our patients. We must stay with them. We must continue to treat them. Another initiative that we've put forth is allowing EMS to uh, transport low-acuity patients to the urgent care centers. That might release some of the pressures on the existing hospitals. And, unfortunately, the province hasn't come to the table to permit us to do that either. So, you know, they apply band-aids and promises, with offload nurses that have been insufficient in dealing with the crisis of, of code zeros and, and offload delays, Bill. Just to continue on that, 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 that problem then, so your, your staff will take somebody to, let's say for the sake of discussion, Jurovinsky, up up on the mountain, and, and you go into ER, and they say, well, the, the cubicles are full. Uh, and by the way, there's no beds upstairs either. 
your staff have to stay there probably with somebody on a stretcher in a hallway until they can find an opening for that individual. Then you can discharge that staff and they can get back on the road. And sometimes Correct. that takes two and a half to three hours. Correct. Or That's longer. Exactly what happens. We can only take patients to three hospitals, adult, adult care hospitals. Keep in mind, years past, we raised issue with the fact that the closure of McMaster to adult patients would create an additional crisis. It was supposed to be bed neutral. That hasn't happened. So this crisis has actually, actually escalated as a result of us having one less uh, adult hospital to go to. So giving credence to our proposition that perhaps it's time that we look at urgent care centers to bring lower acuity patients that can be managed by the urgent care center. That will take some of the pressure off of the three adult emergency uh, hospitals. Well, we had Rob McIsaac from Hamilton Health Sciences on the other day, and he was talking about the long-term plans. And obviously, it's a it's a, a, a work in, in progress right now. But he was talking about doing that. As you know, uh, they're talking about centralizing a lot of the acute care hospitals now, maybe down around the general site. And uh, I don't know how that's going to go over with the public, but uh, the only way to do that, as you've just mentioned, is to have more of these uh, localized and neighborhood centers that uh, that your staff could take people to. That makes all kinds of sense. Well, if they're using them as a reason to justify centralization of hospitals, then they can't deny the fact that ambulances have to take patients somewhere. And obviously, as part of our exceedingly increasing call volume, a percentage of our patients are low acuity. And they need to go somewhere. Why not the urgent care centers that they've relied on to take pressure off of uh, the hospitals? And just as a point yesterday, I think Matthew Green kind of hit the point on the He he actually asked, why is it that a lot of our patients are calling EMS? The, The reality is there's a portion of our population that uses EMS and the emergency department as their primary caregiver. Mm -hmm. That's the reality. And they're low acuity calls, and perhaps um, those patients can go to the urgent care centers. That would definitely assist with the problem. But again, it's an issue of funding, and the provincial government isn't recognizing some of the solutions and what they are uh, uh, at least suggesting or attempting to implement are really band-aids and, and promises because their their initiatives have been ineffective over the last five to seven years. So where do we go on this? I mean, city council at some point is going to have to make a commitment to this, and I know they've they've come some distance. I mean, we have to give them their their due because when you and I started talking about this six seven years ago, uh, their city staff at that time and, and a lot of the councilors didn't even think there was a real problem here. They thought these were just manufactured numbers and a false crisis. They get it now. At least I think they get it now anyway, Mario. But are they ready to put their money where their mouth is? Well, I think in the past the message was not adequately delivered by our senior management. And I think city councils was left with a false impression. In spite of, you know, my leadership's uh, attempts at, at, at convincing them that we've got a crisis looming. Uh, this new management, senior management team that's come on board has obviously taken a different view. Um, We've sort of gone hand in glove on a number of occasions to council to to advise them that we need more resources. There has been uh, a gradual investment in frontline staff. It's been inadequate only because we're playing catch up and we have been for so long. So I think they are getting it. um, But I think we need to also shoot straight and give them the goods. Um, Yesterday's report failed to bring to council's attention how we deal with the increasing uh, calls for assistance. And it's, it's fairly simple. You know, and based on all benchmark initiatives, we need more frontline ambulances. And that, that has to be delivered to council 
clear, emphatically, decisively, and they can make the decision. They can assess their own risk tolerance for having escalating response times and inadequate ambulance service. But at least we need to deliver that message to them. But you've and, seen the numbers, Maria. How many more ambulances? And, and with that staff, obviously. I mean, the, the vehicle doesn't mean anything if you don't have staff for it. Well, absolutely. So all in, a 24-hour transport ambulance is about a million bucks. That's big dollars. We probably are looking at six to seven over the, over the next number of years. Given that there's been nothing in 2017, and our call volumes increased 7%. So that's been left unmitigated. So we're dealing with uh, inadequate resources while we have an escalating call volume for assistance. So, I mean, the numbers are the numbers. Uh, either they prioritize EMS or uh, they, they accept the fact that we'll have a substandard ambulance service. And I, I want to give credit to council. You know, they, they have made some decisions in the past to enhance staffing. It's been inadequate, and I think we have to be very, very clear about what we need, and the data is before them. And yesterday, uh, Jason Farr, Councillor Farr, said, I think we're being conservative in estimating an increase in call volume of 20,000. 20, I think we're looking at double that. Given the demographics, given the aging population, the need for assistance in that upper echelon age demographic is significant. It represents presently 16% of our call volume for those patients that are over 80 years of age. I got to so, ask. I got to ask you something else. We have got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, there's another report that came to council yesterday from uh, from Hamilton Fire, and and uh, they looked at uh, their statistics as well. Seventy percent of their calls right now are are basically emergency calls to do with 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 first aid for healthcare issues right now. How do, how does that jive with your numbers, and and what kind of an impact does that have on 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 your department versus theirs? Are, are you guys working hand in hand here, or, or are you doing as some counselors seem to suggest, uh, duplicating services here? I think there may be. Uh, I think there's a recognition that the tiered response agreement that exists, where fire is dispatched to certain calls, is antiquated and requires revision. Um, the evidence, the medical evidence, and if we're going to do things based on medical evidence, and I think we, we have to do things properly, not politically, uh, fire um, plays a significant role in a, in a certain subset of emergency life and death calls. They probably shouldn't be tiered to a large number of calls when they're not getting there first and when they're dispatched out of a fire station at the same time EMS is. Tiered response was born in the, <clears throat> in the 80s by... Uh, the provincial government who recognized that we had a, an understaffed ambulance service and it was supposed to be a stop gap and measure to send fire because they were a resource that was available it was supposed to be temporary and it was only to do uh, it was only to deal with a shortage of ambulances until that was corrected it's now grown where fire departments now count on a large percentage of their calls as being medical i think we're having discussions with <clears throat> senior management as to how that tiered response agreement and given the calls that fire departments respond to locally, perhaps aren't necessary. And, and it's got to be backed up with medical evidence, and I think we have that. So will that result in a savings? I'm not really sure. But I think if we're looking at efficiencies and looking at medical evidence, we've got to look at the number of calls that fire goes to and where that resource is best spent. Well, and just to your, to your previous point, I mean, you know, as we say, 70% of those fire calls are now health or emergency but but they're not critical. I think the overwhelming majority of them have said are not even critical calls. So there's there's got to be some analysis here of these numbers. I mean, and and you can't look at one without the other. I mean, this is this this is maybe part of the problem city council has is they get this report, then they get this report. Somebody should put the two of these things together and say, look, we got a problem here when it comes to emergency services and response time. Absolutely, and hopefully they'll uh, assess the problem based on 
the prevailing medical evidence and make the appropriate decisions. As I said, you, you know, our, our fire partners do a great job in a certain subset of calls, life and death calls, but I, I think they will probably agree that there's room for revision uh, as to the type of calls that they go to, and a lot of the calls that they presently go to probably un, are unnecessary. That's a discussion we have to have, and whether that results in cost savings, council is going to have to assess that. I think when, when medical calls increase, we need to increase medical services. Makes sense to me. Simple as that. Mario, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Mario Pastorero, president of Opsi Local 256. Uh, the advanced care paramedics and uh, those that uh, answer those 911 calls. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Premier Kathleen Wynne is going to announce that her government has intended now to build a high-speed rail line connecting Windsor to Toronto and several communities in between. Trains are expected to travel anywhere between 250 and 300 kilometers per hour. Wow, that's fast. With uh, the project coming at a cost of uh, about $20 billion. Chicken feed, right? Not doesn't cost much at all. Uh, the, the I know, I know. You're saying, uh, didn't they announce that before? Yeah, they have. I've uh, been there, done that. And if you think you've heard this before, uh, <laughs> you have. Uh, it just seems they trot this out just before every election that they're going to do this. Richard Brennan's been writing about it for years now, of course, and he was covering Queens Park for the Toronto Star. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the latest incarnation of this idea. Richard, how are you doing this morning? Good, Bill. I hope I don't fade out on you. I'm driving up to Aurelia here. Oh, okay. Well, well, we'll try to stay on the steady here if we can for a few minutes. Uh, you, As I mentioned in my preamble, you've been covering this story, this light rail between Toronto and Windsor for years now, because it seems every election the government says, yeah, we're going to do it this way. I know we said we were, but this time for sure. Well, let's put it this way, Bill. If you took all the proposals and studies that have been done on this and made a bonfire out of it, You'd see it from the space station. <laughs> it is. I, I, I'm. I'm very serious when I say this. One of my first stories more than 40 years ago was uh, how they're going to build a high-speed rail from. In that case, it was from uh, Windsor to Montreal. It's. It's one of these things that come up every once in a while, and you know what? I, I would celebrate it, but I know it's not going to happen. It's been talked about to death, and it just seems to be one of these uh, these cherries they like to pull off the tree and say, look, this is, this is a great idea. Why don't we do this? And you know it's not going to happen, although it would be a terrific idea. Yeah, but, but again, uh, you have to ask yourself why they're dragging it out now, and I think I already know the answer to that, obviously. There's an election coming up in a year. But but you know how many times how many times are the people in this area going to be you know enamored of this and say come on didn't we didn't we hear this before and and, she, and they're really doubling down on this Richard because they're going to make the announcement today and then they're going to to London which is going to be one of the stops uh, that's the the home riding of course of Deb Matthews who's the uh, associate prime premier then they're going over to Kitchener to make the announcement to said hey you guys are going to benefit from this too yeah, well, you, you can, uh, you know, it's a pig in a poke. I mean, you can promise all you like. You can make all the announcements you want. But it, it would be, a, you know, our chance to do this, I think, was during that recession of 2008, 2009, when the government, the federal government, was looking for, you know, projects to invest in. Invest in. This would have been a perfect legacy project that people would use forever and ever amen 
they didn't do it then. They're not going to do it now. They can stop and do a whistle stop, whatever they like, and it's not going to happen. You and I know it's not going to happen. I'm not being cynical. This is just reality. And it's just done, like you say, for the election and to change whatever channel they might be having, you know, they might have right now with electricity and et cetera, et cetera, any kind of the problems that this uh, liberal government has faced over the last little while. But, Richard, as I mentioned, you've been covering this and writing about this for years every time uh, past governments have brought this up. Is, Is there a market? Is there a business case for actually doing something like this? Oh, I think there is, quite frankly. I know it sounds fine in the sky, but you've got to remember the majority of the population of Canada is along that corridor. And it would be, I mean, just think about it. The, uh, be able to, you know, and they could extend this to Montreal at some point, to be able to get from Windsor to Toronto in a couple hours, and just like they do, I mean, it works in Europe, and has worked in Europe and Japan and other places for, for decades, there's no reason it couldn't happen here. The trouble is that people don't have that mindset. You know, the car is still king in Ontario, regardless of you know, uh, what you hear about truck, public transit all the time in Toronto. Car still king. People don't think about that kind of transit as being you know, a real possibility. Well, and we've seen this with past projects, haven't we, Richard? You know, and again, governments for years and years were saying, you know what we need to do? We need to build a union station to Pearson Airport's shuttle. Boy, that thing is going to be packed. So finally, after hedging on this for years and years, they build it. Nobody uses it. Well, I don't know if that's quite true. I think that uh, the office, they call it, is being used, and it's being... Uh, well, they dropped the price significantly. That's one of the reasons. Well, absolutely. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous to think anybody was going to use that before the price that they were they had. I got to tell you, I think it was 1982. I was a transportation writer at the Toronto Star, and I did a story then about this great plan that then Davis government had about building a a line to you know serving the airport. That was in 1982. So I, they talk about these things, and they dither and and you know and, and rub their hands and, and whinge and all this, and it and it never happens. And you you understand why people get a little cynical when they kind of hear about these plans that crop up every five or six years. And that's about the last time it was raised was with uh, Dalt McGinty and the Quebec Premier how they were going to look into, or in, probably more than that, actually, how they were going to look into the feasibility of a high-speed train from Montreal to Windsor. But, you know, when let's let's talk about the reality here, because I've talked to some of the folks at, uh, at well, obviously, the Burlington station's around here, too, and there was a, a time not too many years ago when our oldest daughter was going to Western, so, I mean, she was coming back and forth a lot, and we always explored the idea of the train. And I said, boy, this high-speed stuff that they were talking about, because it was being bandied about then, too. And I said, would that be viable? And this is one of the guys from CN that was working in one of the stations. And he says, 90% of the people that take this train now are just the university students from the Toronto area going back to the campus at the end of the weekend. So I, I don't know that there's a business case. I can see Toronto to Montreal because, you know, there, that could be an alternative to flying between those two cities. But is there really a market from Windsor to Toronto? I absolutely think this thing could fly. It can't 
it has to operate on its own right away. It can't be an add-on to the existing, you know, a faster diesel or something like that. They're literally, and this is what they'll announce today, I would hope, that's why they're looking to an environmental study, that it has to be on its, in its own right away, and it has to be a high speed. I think it could go, because you've got to remember, okay, we say, well, it makes sense to go to Montreal in winter. Absolutely it does. But there's no reason, like the LRT in Hamilton, that you can't build onto it later on. Well, sure, and we, we've yeah. seen that happen. I mean, you know, I, I tell people when they start getting into the LRT debate, and I don't want to go all through that again, but, no. you, you know, when I was up in Calgary in the early 1980s, their LRT, quote-unquote, really went from one end of downtown to the other. That was it. Now it's all yeah. over the city. It's it's spread exponentially over the last 35, 40 years, and you're anticipating that's going to happen. But are, are they biting off too much here from going from Windsor right away, uh, uh, you know, to, to do this? and Because well, obviously it's... It's not going to go from winter right away. Okay. They're going to build the first leg, as I understand it. What I know about it, right, you know, the particulars you could stick in a thimble. But I'm just saying what I've heard. And it would start, and it would go from Toronto to London. Which is why Deb Matthews, which is why they'd be making the announcement with Deb Matthews today, then. But, you know, we're really talking about nothing. <laughs> it's. We're talking about an idea that's just never going to happen. It, you know, $20 billion, nobody, nobody's going to go for that. It's, it's a wonderful thing to talk about. Could it work? I think it could. But it's just pie in the sky. That's all it is. But, Richard, where are they going to get the money for this? I mean, you know, they've sold off part of Hydro now to try to finance the RLIT projects. And, and obviously Hamilton is supposed to be one of the beneficiaries of this. This is another great big chunk of change. This is a mega project that they're talking about right now. This is a, the province that's in the worst debt in its history right now. How fiscally responsible for his, uh, this government is it for them to, to make a commitment to something like this? Well, you're soon going to see a for sale sign on Queen's Park. Uh, <laughs> because that's, I mean, that's all they, they just don't have the money. That's why I say the whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, they just don't have twenty billion dollars, and you could phase it in. It's not twenty billion dollars in one. No, of course not. But, but we, this province, unfortunately, is not in a position to to carry that kind of financial load. It just it doesn't have that kind of money, and the federal government, you know, I I don't know. I, nobody's. I, I haven't heard about the federal government saying, hey putting their hand up and say, we're going to chip in, too. This is a great idea. Because they haven't in the past, and I can't, I don't suspect they will this time either. Well, they've got some, uh, I, I guess, connections there. David Colonet is involved in this project, and you know David, of course, Richard. Uh, he's yeah. a, a former transportation minister with the federal government back in the Cretchen and Paul Martin governments. And uh, he's, uh, I guess, well-versed in doing these sorts of things. I, I was always uh, finding it instructive back in the day when the big debate was going on here at Hamilton about uh, trying to build the expressway, and uh, the government, that federal government, of course, uh, was giving Hamilton all kinds of problems about environmental assessments and this kind of study. And when they wanted to do the 407 extension all the way up to Peterborough, I was told that Colinette just drove, flew over it in a helicopter and said, yeah, that looks good, and signed off on it. So <laughs> I don't know if he's, he's being that thorough with this project or not, but he says he's already got the report done. Oh, the, there's reports there. I mean, they could... They, they know 
exactly whether it, it would be feasible, whether where it would go. And, I, I mean, if the province is at all serious, which I doubt, but anyway, they're talking about an environmental uh, study. Well, you'd only do an environmental study if you know where it's going to go. And I think they have already, well, they should have, after all these bloody studies over the years, they should know exactly where it will go. And that's why they're looking at an environmental study. But an environmental study would take, that stretch of, you know, from Windsor to Toronto would take forever. And uh, I don't know. It, it, I can't say you hate to sound too cynical, but, the, you know, I, I've been to this dance before. But don't you find that when governments really want to do a project, uh, environmental studies can be done pretty quickly. I mean, it's it's really, you know, it, how, how efficient and how quickly they want to move forward on this. We've seen... Liberal and conservative governments uh, do the fast track on these things uh, anytime they really want to, if they want, really want to get this thing going. Uh, with the government's position, and let's talk about the politics of this for a second, Richard. With the government's position in, in the popularity polls right now in an election just about 12 months from now, how important is for them to at least uh, move? An announcement's not enough, but to actually move on this and at least, they're not going to get a shovel on the ground, but at least show that they're, they're serious about this this time. Well, I mean, this environmental study, you know, right now with with, the, with that announcement, that's at least a foot, you know, a toe in the water. But it really, at the end of the day, if you just promise environmental study and maybe even do the, uh, just look into it a little bit, it's not really that big a deal. I've got to wonder, though, who's going to benefit from this? Because they're talking about Hamilton, or Toronto to Windsor, obviously. Uh, and they're talking about Kitchener. They're talking about uh, London as, as major stops. Uh, but, you know, you've got the Burlington-Hamilton corridor here right now, too. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised they're not looking at doing something like this. Unless, I'm ta as you mentioned, they're, they're talking about doing totally new rail lines on this and maybe even excluding this area. Not unlike what they did with the 401 project some, what, 60, 70 years ago? Where they decided, nah, it doesn't really have to go down to Hamilton, Burlington. We'll just go up by Guelph. Well, it, it's, I think right now what they're talking about, it's, you know, going to, I think it was uh, Guelph. Uh, I don't know if it was Kitchener, I can't remember or not, but London. Yeah, that sounds and, like the 401 corridor, though. Well, I think basically that's what they're talking about. They, you don't, and Chatham. I mean, you're not going to stop and chat them. Give me a break. It, it, it's not going to happen. I mean, to make these things work, you have to get from A to B the fastest you can. And stopping in Chatham, I mean, if somebody wants to go from Chatham to, uh, to Toronto on a high-speed train, well, they can get in their car and drive to London, or they get in their car and drive to Windsor and pick it up there. It, you, ha you can't have that many stops that they're talking about and make it an, an efficient run. What do you expect them to say today? Just that they're going to do this, or, or are they going to try to, to trot out some sort of a timeline to show that they're really sincere about this? They'll, well, they have to trot out some kind of uh, timeline just to make it sound real and that they're serious. I, I, um, I don't know. I, I just think yeah, they'll talk about environmental study. They'll talk about, you know, this is where it's going to, you know, the first phase would be Toronto to London. It would, uh, 
you know, by 2025, I'm just showing numbers here, and the next phase would be from London to Windsor by 2035. Well, I'll tell you, I'll eat my hat if I, you know, if I live that long, 2035 is a long way off, and if I'm still around, I'd love to ride it, but I'll tell you, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. But if you look at the European examples, and I'm glad you brought that up as a comparator, uh, you're right, it's fewer stops. I mean, this is right, rapid transit. I know the debate here about Hamilton with LRT, and they said, well, how can you have so many stops that it's not rapid anymore? But high-speed trains like this are never going to get to that 250 kilometers an hour, Richard. If you have to stop every 30 or 40 clicks, uh, you're only going to get about five or six minutes, and then you're going to have to start slowing down. To, to make this thing work, you pretty much have to go Toronto to Kitchener, Kitchener to London, London to Windsor with no no more stops. Yep. No, absolutely. You nailed it. I mean, you just, it wouldn't be efficient if they did that. I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, LRT is not, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not meant to be like a high-speed train, you know. So you, it, there's just no comparison there. I mean, you people in, in Europe cross the continent. In no time flat. Yeah, and this is don't stop all the time. And and this is what makes the transportation there so efficient. I guess the sixty-four billion dollar question, or in in this case, I guess uh, the fifty-five billion dollar question that they're talking about, is can you get Ontarians to start using this kind of public transit, or are we still going to see this train going by if, in fact, it does get built? Uh, right past the four hundred one, that's still going to be gridlock with people going from Toronto all the way to London or, or to Windsor. Well, you know what makes the bill, I think this makes this attractive, is that flying is such a hassle now. It, you know, flying is not enjoyable anymore, right, by any stretch of the imagination. And if, I'll tell you, if I had a choice between flying, driving, or, or taking a high-speed train, there would be no choice. It would be the train every time. And that's where, that's where people are, people are fed up with flying, the, 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 uh, I, I won't use that term. I'll do about the stuff that they have to go through to to actually get to the plane. Now, people are tired of it, and and they get quite upset about it. This is why I think the train would be would work, and because the population is here, it would absolutely, in my mind, be a, a, the best alternative. But where's the money going to come from? Well, there's the there's the big question. Uh, Richard, we have to break it off at this point. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the time today. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks, Bill. You too. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, who covered Queen's Park for many, many years and covered the story about light uh, or the rapid transit between Toronto and Windsor for many, many years, too. They're going to make the announcement today. We'll see just uh, how they're going to follow up on this. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, we're heading into a long weekend, as we know. The, the first big one, of course, of the uh, soon-to-be summer season. They call it the May 2-4 weekend, uh, simply because it's uh, well, supposedly on the 24th. But that's really kind of a technicality, uh, because uh, the 24th won't be for a couple of days. It's Victoria Day, honoring Queen Victoria. But 90% of the people that are taking the day off and firing off firecrackers at 2 in the morning don't even know that. But anyway, it is also Canada Safety Week. A week aimed to bring awareness to habits plaguing driver safety. And i got to tell you something. Based on what I've seen on the roads over the last couple of weeks, you're not paying attention. And you're certainly not doing anything to honor Canada Safety Week. 
And and there's an awful lot to talk about, boy, when we get into this sort of thing. Always a pleasure to bring Klaus Wagner onto the program, Constable Traffic Specialist with Hamilton Police Services, to talk about these issues. Hi, Klaus. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. Thank you. Good. Listen, before we uh, we get into some of these other yep. things, uh, first of all, I want to express our condolences to uh, uh, the families and friends of the uh, the people that were involved in that uh, terrible accident on Highway 6 yesterday afternoon up near the airport. Uh, there was at least one fatality and some other people injured, and we uh, we are so sad to hear about that. It's a terrible situation. But i got to tell you, I don't know. I, there's an investigation going on about what happened, and I don't want to get into what may or may not have happened. That road scares me, and, and it scares me because there's a lot of twists and turns in it. And, and I know this sounds like we've been parroting this for the longest time, Klaus, but people go too damn fast. Yeah, it's because it's, it's just that open field. You know, they see those open fields, so they think they can go a little quicker. Plus, you know, depending where you get on from it, if you're getting on from, you know, 6 South, it's not as bad. But when you come off of it off the 403, you still have that highway, highway mentality that yes. it's okay to do 100, 110. And it's country, so you don't have those houses that kind of slow it down. Like I always say, and we've talked about this before, that European thinking where, you know, it's 50, 80, or 100. We're here in, in Ontario. You know, speed limits can be all over the place depending on what area you're in. And people get that idea that it's okay to drive 110 out there, but it isn't. You've got those small uh, cross, um, you know, Book and, and Trinity Road. You've got those ones crossing that are, you know, 70 kilometers an hour. And there's, there's sometimes farm tractors out on there. A lot of bad things can happen. And then plus the airport. So you have people getting off planes, getting into a car, maybe from a different country, you know what I mean, and and things can happen very quickly. And, and again, I'm not trying to insinuate that that, that was the cause of what no, happened no. yesterday. We don't no, know. No, no. But I just, in my own experience, when I'm driving along there, it, it can be pretty frightening. And I saw a collision there a couple of years ago right in front of me, about, a, about half a kilometer ahead of me, on a bright sunny day just like this, and I thought, that car's fading into the other lane, and boom, there it was. And it just yeah. scares the heck out of you when you see something like that. But anyway... Uh, and it's it's funny that you mentioned about coming off highways onto streets like this. And you talked about this in the past. The, the speeding problem on the link has always been a concern. And you're absolutely right. When you come off the 403 onto the link, in other words, at the west end of the link, the trouble with speeding is a lot more egregious there because people are used to doing 110 they get off that ramp onto the link. They're still doing 110, and we're being generous. Or more. And we're being generous when we say 110. Yeah, coming up. Yeah, and it's what they do. They, you know, they come there, and we've got those bigger signs posted. And I've told you my theory about maybe some numbers on the roadway, but it, it is it, and especially if they're not getting off. If they're using the link, technically, what it was designed for is to go from you know the uh, the west end of you know London, uh, Brantford, over to the Niagara. Strip. That's what that whole highway was kind of about. Was about right. So they still had that mentality that they, it's okay to do 120 all the way through down down along it and then get onto the other part of the highway where it's not. It's it's a you know it's a parkway. It's no different than Don Valley or the Conestoga. It's it's a link inside a major city. Do signs like that and, and road paintings do they make a difference, Klaus? Well, I was hoping it was um, as. Uh, as our friend Shauna Whalen at 108 says, yeah. we put one on the they put one on the uh, Dundas Hill there, right down around by the bends. It said slow down. Unfortunately, it peeled off and it said uh, uh, sow down. <laughs> but she did when I first went up there. She actually said to me, she goes, you know what? I I did see it, and you know what? She goes, I did actually think about it when I got to that corner. Yeah, maybe I should slow down a little bit. So you know, we're trying everything we can. But as we we've talked before, Bill, it is it's a personal choice. My belief the last 10 years has always been harmony between all road users, pedestrians, cyclists, cars. That's what Road Safety Week is all about, trying to get everybody to buy in. But, you know, as we know, 
one collision, one fatality, that bridge, the, the Skyway being knocked out, our city is in peril because it's just everything gets funneled through the link, downtown, York Boulevard, and it's just a standstill. And and then people start to get that, oh, I want to get home, I want to get home, and they get become a little more aggressive as soon as they have a chance to open it up a little bit again. Because I've seen in some of the smaller communities, you know, they, they do that sort of thing. When uh, If we're going up north, uh, when we make that trip up around Collingwood Blue Mountain, uh, we, we usually go up around Caledon East, a nice little town, and, and there's a, the speed limit there is 50. Uh, and I guess on the road, airport road, it's about 80. But once you get into the Caledon East, there's a, there, there are yellow things painted all over in the downtown on the main drag. Slow down. Slow, and there's got to be eight or ten of them on each side of the road. So, in other words, constant reminders, slow down. And I see it does seem to make a difference for some people. Yeah, and that's what we hope. I mean, that's all we can do is, you know, is, you know and like I've told you, you know, sit in my office daily, you know, three, four, ten people calling in from particular neighborhoods saying, you know, the speeding is ridiculous down here. Can you do something about it, please? And, you know, sometimes I would like to say to them, we're, you know, we'll try to get out in those areas, but it's a problem everywhere because, you know, and you have to think about that. If you're complaining about your neighborhood, what are you doing when you go to somebody else's neighborhood? Are you driving appropriately or are you also a problem to somebody else? Well, and that's been an ongoing problem, and, and we, we'll, we'll talk about speed limits and other things like this. Uh, we, we couldn't have a discussion about uh, Road Safety Week without having a discussion about uh, distracted driving, uh, which has reached epidemic proportions now. Yeah, it's, again, and we've talked about this, and I keep sending the message out. Again, it's a conscious effort, and, uh, you know, someone made a joke the last time I was on your show when I talked about, uh, I've never received a tax that says someone's in my house. You know, I mean, those, you know, text messages are just, you know, a lot of times they're just nonsensical little messages because you're bored, you're sitting on your couch and you're sending somebody a text and you don't know that they're in their car at the time. You're sending them a text. You know, if they're answering it, you don't, you may not even know where they are. That's why they have the technology that says, I'm in my car right now, you know, and it answers automatically and stuff like that. But it's a conscious effort. Are you, are you putting it where you think you need to have it because I got to be in constant communication with my phone? Well, and I know there's an addiction there, and it and it's problematic. But because every time somebody hears that ping, they think they immediately have to see what it is and respond. And immediately, to it. Bill, you're right. And, immediately, even if it's somebody saying, "Here's what I'm having for lunch today," and there's a picture of their salad or something like that, you don't know. So why would it? There's there's no emergency thing that says, "Oh my goodness, you know your your house is on fire. Get home right away." Well, exactly, and that would usually be a phone call. You hope. Yeah, you would think, and and again, unless you have Bluetooth. But any, and that's something else that drives me nuts too. The number of people, and I saw eight or ten of them up around Golf Links Road yesterday afternoon, ten, uh, you know, with with cell phones up to their ears. And I figure, you know, it's against the law. Uh, you know that it doesn't cost that much to get Bluetooth capability, even if you have an older vehicle. They're not that expensive. Most new cars, if I guess over the last seven or eight years, already have it built in anyway. So why aren't people using it? A lot of times, when I pull cars over. They say to me, oh, it doesn't, I don't know how to hook it up properly or, you know, it didn't get hooked up properly. And uh, I'll be honest, Bill, sometimes I say to them, well, I have the very, very first generation Bluetooth. It cost me $73, I think, at one of the local stores. And it hooks up automatically. I get into my car, it hooks up automatically. I've never had an issue with it. Cars, you know, it's just they're not either taking the time or they don't want it or they just, you know, it's it's... They want something in their hand. You know, maybe it's that. Maybe it's the the mail. Got to have the clicker in my hand. You know, that type mentality. Yeah, but I look. I I have Bluetooth, obviously, and it's in the car. I s- installed mine myself, and I am I'm a not a tech guy by any way, shape, or form. If I can do it, 
anybody can do it. Yeah. It's not that difficult. It took me less than five minutes. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, it does. You just have to sit there and, you know, yeah, I agree 100%. And, and it's not just, you know, it's, it's against the law, but, I mean, it's, it, you could kill people. I mean, the, the numbers here are staggering uh, about the number of f- f- uh, f- casualties and, and fatalities now that are coming as a result of this. As you guys go through this weekend, though, and, and th- th- we're going to be looking for a number of things, and uh, your counterpart with the OPP, Kerry Schmidt, of course, uh, was on earlier today uh, uh, on all the media talking about what they're going to be doing on the highways. And, of course, uh, police services here in Hamilton and Halton will be looking at, at the, the roads themselves here in the communities uh, what are you looking for when you increase patrols like this on a weekend? Well, it's all about safety to make sure everybody gets to work, you know, all the family functions. And, you know, this is probably the first big barbecue weekend where people want to go and visit their friends and, and stuff like that. So, you know, aggressive driving where, you know, people aren't taking the extra seconds. Maybe they think they're running behind. You know, they're running red lights. They're they're not coming to complete stops. That's one of my biggest things this last year and a half when I go out and talk to the public is you have to come to a stop sign thinking about stopping first, not thinking, can I roll through this stop sign? Because when you think about not stopping is when you get in those you hit somebody, a pedestrian that's coming off the sidewalk, uh, a cyclist, you know, unfortunately, that might be riding the wrong way or, or, you know, or had the right away. And, you know, we need to think about it. So we're looking for that type of things, distracted driving, because it still is the number one. And unfortunately, still impaired driving. It's still, you know, Bill, you and I have talked about it a thousand times. We've done the programs on the shows. I'm out there with businesses. People still make that mistake that they don't plan before they leave their house. How am I getting home? How am I getting home? And I'm so proud of even, and we talked about your daughter and my daughter. My daughter yesterday had a function, and she, and she texted me, Dad, can you pick me up? I'm going out tonight. And I don't mind, and most parents are 100%. like that. Just tell us, hey, you need a ride? That's fine. Yeah. And, 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 and there'll always be somebody. Exactly. But, but you always make those plans ahead of time. You, but have you know, to. You're going to have a couple of drinks, then that's fine. Just don't get behind the wheel. Yeah, and then you won't make the decision at, at the time, and, and that's how it, it's been proven. Like when people always say to me, well, how do they drink that much? And I said, it's not the people that are in that little low area where it's, uh, you know, they don't know. It's the ones once they get high, they think they're still okay because you're not making the right decision at that point. You had to make the decision before you leave, left your house. Well, and there's, now that we're into the nicer weather here, you, you've raised an interesting point. I mean, you know, in in other situations and other times of the year, I guess, yeah, you're going over to a pub or a, a bar or some nature. They're very smart, sir, and, and they may, in fact, say, you know, sir, uh, you, you shouldn't really be driving, and they can cut you off. But when you're in somebody's backyard... Uh, more often than not, especially if they're people that you know, they're not going to say that. They, you know, they may want to say that. They may see the indications. But a lot of the time they just, well, I don't want to start a fight. I don't want to ruin anybody's reputation. You really have to kind of self-police yourself. Yeah, we've, we've talked so much talked so long built together you, you you know my messages and that's the bit one of my other ones is courage and it takes a lot of courage to to say to someone you know what you've had too much jim you're staying over you're i'm giving you a ride home it takes a lot of courage to say to somebody and or you know you get in a vehicle with somebody on the way up to the cottage and they want to have those road travelers it takes courage to say to your driver hey look can we just wait till we get to the cottage can we have one on the dock instead of one in the boat uh, you know what I mean? It takes courage because it's hard to have those things. Life isn't a soap opera, as I always say. You know, soap opera, they say all kinds of things, and you get, oh, my goodness, I can't believe she said that to so-and-so. Well, real life, it is hard to have those conversations with our children about smoke, uh, you know, smoking drugs and driving high, or if it's our neighbor that comes over to our house and has you know, three, four, or five beers and wants to get in the car just to drive down the country road. I only live you know, a kilometer and a half. Well, that kilometer and a half, you can do a lot of damage to yourself or to somebody else. 
when we talk about distracted driving, I, I, obviously the mental picture a lot of people conjure up is, is texting or cell phone use or whatever the case might be. But in a broader sense, class, you've told us in the past, distracted driving can be eating, drinking, it can be anything that's really taking your focus away from what you're supposed to be paying attention to. Yeah, and and cars are you know are like that nowadays. You know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, we jokingly say all the time, you and I, when you know, when we were kids, and you know, we were going on those family trips, and we'd be you know sleeping in the back. Uh, you know, whatever you call it, the window shelf, as my dad used to call it. You know, get up on the window shelf. Oh, yeah, listen, when Garth Brooks was here last year, he told that story when he was a little kid. On family vacations, he used to roll up right against the back window. Yeah. You know, that little ledge there right behind the back seat of the window? That was his spot. Yeah. Uh, that's quite illegal now, but in, in in the day it was. But, I mean, we're supposed to be smarter now, aren't we? Yeah. And, and, you know, our kids are sitting there, but, you know, God forbid they just sit there so we have TV sets for them. We have Bluetooth. We are, Sorry, we have Wi-Fi available so they can watch their Netflix shows. But, you know, now even grown-ups are starting to do that. Like I said, one of the other things we're starting to see, and Carrie and, Carrie and I have talked about this, what they're seeing is, you know, people with their big, you know, big, uh, big cell phones, and they have them, you know, properly put up on a, on a windowsill or something like that. But they're watching Netflix in bumper-to-bumper traffic trying to catch up on Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? Like, it's just the mentality that a car is just a mobile living room now because it drives itself, as they tell me. Some people say, well, it drives itself, Claus. It doesn't drive itself. That's why you call it a driver. It's a verb. You have to do it. It's an action. Well, and that's the excuse I see from a lot of people as well that figure, you know what, the traffic's really slow. I'm bumper to bumper. I can check my texts. Yeah. Well, that's when somebody runs into you or you run into somebody else, and then all of a sudden you got to pull over to the side now because you've had a collision and you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, or you don't move. And th- and this has happened to all of us where you've been behind somebody at a stoplight and they're checking their text messages because they figure, well, I'm stopped, it's a stoplight. But they keep their head down because they get engaged now and the light turns green. And for some people, you know your bill, you know yourself. It could be one second, it could be 10 seconds, it doesn't matter. The car's not moving, the light's green. And that, and then the aggression starts. You know what I mean? The the finger waving. Uh, you know, maybe cutting them. You know, sliding. You know, racing by them and then cutting in front of them really quickly and trying to teach them a lesson. All that happens when you're on your phone. It's not just the the text message. It's all the stuff that you know happens around it. You got 30 seconds left here. There's one yep. other thing too for people that are going to be maybe heading up to cottage or to cottage country, whatever the case might be. And I've seen this happen. Uh, overloading cars. Uh, to the point where you can't even see out the car. You can't see the rear view, uh, and, and, and it's impeding, basically, your ability to see what's going on around you. Yeah, and driving's all about that. Driving is all the stuff you scan in to bring in to make, to make good good uh, uh, choices as you're driving. Cars ahead of you, behind you, people passing you. You always have to be very aware uh, that way, Bill. I agree with you there. Klaus, I, I hope that we can talk next week and say, hey, guess what? Nothing happened. Everybody obeyed the law. That's what I always want because, as Bill, as you know, if I'm not a policeman, I could be a cook somewhere. So <laughs> I'm fine with, with that if we can get everybody on the right page. Well, knowing you, you're probably doing both this weekend. Yeah. So enjoy it. Thanks so much to for this, Klaus. all your listeners, have the safest of, uh, of Victoria Day weekends. Bill. You betcha. You too. Great talking with you. Klaus okay. Wagner, of course, uh, traffic specialist with, with uh, Hamilton Police Services. We're back after the break. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.